Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Amarillo is sponsored this week by Amber Morgan and the Manny Camper. Amber is the city's most creative nail artist at Ugly Press Salon. She takes private appointments there, but also comes to you through the Manny Camper, a mobile nail salon that's perfect for birthday parties, bridal, bachelorette parties, girls' night out, employee appreciation, and a whole lot more. Go to themannycamper.com or follow the Manny Camper on Instagram. And if you're interested, check out Amber's Hey Amarillo interview from back in February of 2018. This episode is also sponsored by SKP Creative, a full-service agency using traditional and digital marketing strategies. One of those strategies is social media. So if you're running a business, this is a world that changes all the time and it can be more than a little tricky to figure out on your own. But SKP develops data-driven communication strategies to share your story and connect with your audience. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more and schedule a free social media evaluation for your business. SKP Creative. Make it happen. Today's guest is Lacey Scott. Now, due to my career as a writer, I've known about Lacey Scott since about 2003 or so. We knew a lot of the same people around the United States related to a church movement called Emergent Village. I was an author. I was writing in that world. But I didn't know Lacey lived in Amarillo until several months ago. And that's when I had a, wait, you're that Lacey Scott kind of moment. So obviously I had to interview her. Um, We talk about that past. We talk about how she ended up here. And we talk about her work in refugee health. And all of that stuff is super compelling. So I'm excited about this episode. Here's Lacey Scott. Lacey Scott, welcome to the Hamrella Podcast. Thanks for being here. I am excited to be here. I'm excited you're here. I know you listen to the show, and I know that we've got a lot of different things to talk about. And the first question I always ask is, why are you in Amarillo? How did you end up here? So that's my first question for you. All right. Well, actually, I took a fairly circuitous route to get to what is in essence back home. So like a couple of your esteemed previous guests, I too am a Wellington skyrocket. All right. I grew up in Wellington. My pa- my dad's from there. And from there, I went to college at Wayland Baptist University. I was a good Baptist kid. And good Baptist kids get cheap Baptist college mm-hmm. when they go to school. And so that's how I wound up at Wayland. I graduated there with my degree in biology and was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with a biology degree. I knew I didn't want to go to medical school, but I didn't really want to teach. And I had a professor in college who had been a missionary in Kenya for many years, and he had a doctorate in public health. And he showed me what a public health like graduate program looked like. And it was super interesting to me. And so I wound up going, moving to Houston and going to the University of Texas School of Public Health. And I got my master's degree um, in public health, which was a terribly long and prolonged process for a master's degree. But um, so I moved to Houston, I went to grad school, and I lived in Houston for four years. At the time I was in grad school, I was also going to a church there called Ecclesia. And um, one time, uh, my pastor came to me and said they were hosting a conference and if he and he needed some help. And so wanted to know if I'd be interested in like a little part-time job temporary to help them plan this conference. And what it wound up being was an emergent theological conversation. And at the time, Emergent Village was a fledgling organization that was doing progressive pastoral networking and theological exploration. 
And I went, I helped out with that conference. It went really great. I met a lot of people and was offered at the, at the end of that, a permanent part-time position with Emergent Village. So I was still kind of in the throes of my studies, but it worked out good because it was just a part-time job. I was still in school. Um, and then after four years in Houston, grad school kind of stalled out for me. Um, my professor and I had very different expectations of what a master's thesis was. And instead of really trying to figure out what that looked like, I quit grad school. And so I quit grad school with probably the most thesis hours in the history of the University of Texas wow. School of Public Health. And so not a great distinction, not a great distinction. Um, so I did that. But at the same time, so I was frustrated at school, and I was real tired of summer. And so these networks that I had made, so I'd been working for Emergent at that point for probably two years or so, and had made a whole bunch of really interesting, neat connections. And so through that decided sort of just out of the blue that I was going to move to Kansas City which I did. Okay. So in the fall of 2003, I packed up all my stuff and I moved to Kansas City where I basically knew, well, my sister was there at the time, oddly, and I knew like two other people and wound up living in Kansas City for about six years. Living in the Midwest is a completely different experience than living here in, in well, just in my my experience previous to that had been living in Texas. Right. Living in the Midwest, they have very different... I don't even know how to say it. Their social interactions are just totally different. Okay. Missouri and Kansas is very different than like Minnesota, but that whole Minnesota nice thing is a real thing. Right. And it sort of has its own embodiment in different parts of the Midwest. Anyway, so I lived in Kansas City six years. And in the meantime, again, remember, I had quit grad school. Right. So I was doing this emergent thing. And again, traveling all over, doing work that felt really meaningful, working part-time at the same time at a church. And so in the midst of all of that, I guess a, 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 an easy way to say that was that I broke up with church. Okay. And when you break up with church, you can't work at a church anymore. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, and there were a lot of reasons and things behind all of that. But ultimately, it just felt like that was no longer... A place that had been so deeply resonant and connecting to me was no longer a place that felt like that anymore. And that's that's a story that's not uncommon, especially, I think, with, with our generation and even with people like yourself that were intimately connected with the church world. And I should say, at this point that we could take a really deep dive into talking about Emergent and Emergent Village because my writing career sort of happened adjacent to all the stuff that you were doing and a lot of the people that you were working with. And it's funny because, you know, we haven't known each other in person very long, but, like, I can look back and the people I was reading and the people who were blogging at the same time as I was and, and in the same publishing sphere or like all of your friends. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny to to go back now and, you know, read some stuff and, and see your name like in all these forwards to books sure. and acknowledgments and stuff. And I'm just like, well, that's the Lacey Scott that I'd read about oh, in 2003. <laughs> now she's here doing this podcast here in Amarillo. And so just acknowledging that it's strange that I feel like we have a connection, but we didn't know each other at Not the time. At all. And so we'll hit that pause and resume the, the conversation from there. So, so you broke up with church. So I broke You're up with church. You're still in Kansas City, though. I'm still in Kansas City, but I'm becoming increasingly unemployed. Okay. 
The Emergent Village began to transition into an organization that wanted a full-time executive director instead of, I was like a glorified office manager and event planner, and I loved it, and it was fun, um, but what they, they were looking for a more strategic um, leader of the organization that could actually take it somewhere. I was just doing the things I was told, right? which was a real problem when you had a whole bunch of visionary leaders who had their hands at about a hundred pots. They would all get together, make a decision. And I swear in 10 minutes, everybody had either forgotten about it or changed yeah, their minds. Yeah, because it was not a CEO structure no. or a president structure. It was just a bunch of people it kind was, of working in community to do this thing. And they first and foremost described it as a friendship. Right. And out of this friendship, they wanted to find a different way to be the church, to embody theology, all of these kind of new ways of looking at and doing this stuff together. So that so then the church job went away, the emergent job went away, and I was left in Kansas City with an incomplete master's degree right. on my resume. And people do not love that. It it I think it has a it gives off the impression that you're not a finisher. Okay. Um, and so I had a number of jobs. I was overqualified for entry-level jobs, and I was underqualified for anything above that. So I found myself in this really terrible middle space of not being able to find gainful employment. So somewhere in the middle of this, I, I decided I actually really liked my field, and I wanted to go back to school and finish. So fortunately for me, UT has a multi-site School of Public Health. And so I could transfer schools without transferring institutions because you can't like transfer in the middle of grad school like you can your undergrad. And so I, because I looked at KU and they're all, they wanted me to start over. Well, I remember I have like 30 hours worth of thesis work. You just needed to finish that thesis. Finish it. And so instead, I transferred to the UT School of Public Health in Dallas. I got a fantastic new advisor who looked at my my transcript and he was like, I'm not passing you in one more thesis hour until I see something in front of my face. And that was exactly what I needed. Wow. And I finished um, in about two semesters, taking one class, meeting with my professor, getting the plan together for my thesis, and I got it done. And so then I went, so I was in Dallas for just a tiny amount of time, just long enough to do the school thing. And I went back to Kansas City and but I still couldn't find any work, and so I was temping and doing stuff and living in a. Fr- I you know I'm at this point I am over thirty, and I am living in a friend's spare bedroom mm-hmm. and having a hard time paying him the three hundred dollars a month that he asked for. I mean that was steal, and so I just decided it was probably time for to admit defeat, and I came back to Wellington. Okay. So I'm over 30. I'm once again living with my parents. Highly educated. Highly educated. uh, Substituting at Wellington High School, which actually is pretty fun, but it is not lucrative. And reading the Harry Potter books in the evening because I didn't (laughs) have anything else to do. And um, at that time, again, and this is really social media is beginning to pick up in the, like, this was in 2009. And and so people knew I was back in the area and um, a friend that I grew up with, she's a couple years older than me, Lindy Forrester, who used to live in Amarillo, mm-hmm. uh, contacted me and said that there was a job that she thought that would be a good fit for me here in Amarillo. And one of the things that um, I did in the end of my tenure in Kansas City when I had a lot of time on my hands 
was that I worked for, um, I volunteered with an organization called New Roots for Refugees. So it was an organization, it's a farm training program sponsored by Catholic Charities of Kansas City, Kansas. And they do a, they take refugees, they give them a plot of land on this this farm. Mm -hmm. And for three years, you have this process by which they learn to farm. The, many of them are have already been farmers. Right. So you don't need to teach them how to farm, but you do kind of need to help them learn how to farm in Kansas. Right. And then how do you market your goods and how do you take it to the farmer's market and sell it? And how do you do money? And how do you talk to people about how do you prepare maybe greens from Burma that may, people might not have ever seen, but people were incredibly curious and interested and very generous in wanting to support these farmers. So I worked on Fridays at their harvest to help them get ready, and then I worked on Saturdays at the farmer's market. And so as a result, I have this really interesting combination of skills and background and education. So I've been, you know, I have this master's degree in public health. I've been working with refugee families. I have been an event planner. Yeah. I So I, this resume of mine for the right person would be great. I just hadn't yet found who that magic bullet was. And so Wellington clearly like, is where that's you're where I'm find going that to person, find it right? totally. And so at least I was not going to starve. So um, and my mother loved having me home for a little while. I'm so. sure, of course. Um, so I, Lindy pointed me to this job in Amarillo that was available. I applied for it and interviewed for it, and I actually left the interview going. That went really well. That, like really well. And so it's great to know that even if you don't get it, you couldn't have done any better. I felt a lot of um, synergy. And the person that was interviewing me decided to mock me and like tease me in the middle of the interview. And I'm like, I think that's a good sign. <laughs> and so found out a couple of weeks later that I had gotten that job. And that was in March of 2010. And so 10 years later, okay. I've been in Amarillo. So I, I want to talk about your job. But before we do that, like, I, I want to hear a little bit just about what it's been like to resettle here in Amarillo, having lived, number one, in Wellington, which is a very different place from Amarillo, mm -hmm. but also Kansas City and the Metroplex area and Houston and the different places you've been, you know, 10 years now being based here, what have you discovered about it? Like, I'm sure as a kid growing up in Wellington, you had a perspective of what Amarillo was, and you've got a different one now. So how has that sort of changed for, for sure. you? For sure. So for us as kids, Amarillo was the place we came probably once a month. We went to the dentist here. We went to the mall. Mm -hmm. You know, those were... So you had your medical things, right? You went to the eye doctor, and then your recreation things, and then we always had to go to Sam's. So <laughs> that was what Amarillo was to me as a kid, a place where we played playoff football games. Um, as an adult, I think that... One of the things that that is universal amongst any place that you live is that the older you get, the harder it is to move. Hmm. And so, or at least I have found that. Um, when you're in your 20s and all your friends are in their 20s, there's a lot of availability of time. And the older that you get and the more people's lives change, they start, they get married and they have kiddos and they have different hobbies mm -hmm. and their work have different sort of expectations of their time. All of that reduces availability, and it makes moving really hard. Right. And so the the older I have gotten, the less wanderlust I have, because I I mean, if something amazing came to me and said, "Do it," of course I would do it. But it would have like there has to be something amazing rather than it just being 
because I don't have anything better to do or I want um, more concerts or, you know, some some more of the sort of amenities of a larger city. Um, But at the end of the day, like a lot of the time it boils down to who do you find? Who Mm -hmm. are your people? Where do you find them? How do you set your rhythms of life up? And in that regard, Amarillo has been incredibly good to me. Um, again, I've been here 10 years, so I've been able to kind of really dig in. And and my first iteration of people and my second iteration of people have not are different. Right. And so that's kind of evolved as I've been here, too. Which is another interesting thing to happen as an adult. You know, you get locked into a friend group, and it's it's hard for grownups to make new friends mm-hmm. or different friends or to reach outside their circle. And so to have you know, different iterations and evolution in that area of your life, I think is, is still pretty unique. And, and, it, and it, when people come to Amarillo, and, and it really is, particularly if you're coming from a a city who's sort of behind the scene things is different than Amarillo, either, either in its sort of political conservatism or church culture, or it's a, this is a very family-oriented town, mm-hmm. which is a great thing. But if you're moving in as a, as a single person or a married couple without kids, it's really hard to find your place, particularly if you don't have the avenue of church right. to help introduce you and usher you into those places. And so I just tell people all the time, like, just keep looking. Hang in, keep an open mind. I promise you're going to find your people. They're there. Um, it may take you a minute, mm-hmm. but they are there. I, I haven't talked about this much with um, very many guests, although a couple have. Have you found that community of people who are in a similar place like you, saying that you've broken up with church? Maybe that don't have that deep religious background that mm-hmm. you had. But in a, a place where the first question anybody ever asks you when they meet you is, where do you go to church? Has it been hard to find maybe like-minded people or at least people who sort of share your perspective? So my current group of friends is a mix of all of sort of relationship to church. Some people are very connected and very involved, and then, I, then there's me, and, mm-hmm. and then most of everybody else kind of finds themselves somewhere in the middle. But I will tell you the place right in Amarillo that I have made the most meaningful connections is at the gym. Yeah. I So I am a group fitness person, and okay. that is 100% because I am not disciplined enough to work out by myself. And so I pay extra and do stuff to, ha- to have someone who expects me to show up exactly. every day. And I do. And you know, when you start seeing people two and three times a week, you know about what's going on in their lives. And and you intersect with people that you would never do just in, like, I run into people all the time that my normal life would not put me around. Yeah. Um, but we have this one shared thing. We have this one shared class for an hour. And so, for example, right now, one of my gym friends He's a bit older than me, and his his one of his parents just passed away, and so we've been able to kind of gather around this coll- motley collection of yeah. people to offer our condolences and send love to him as he's burying his parents, and you know things like that. And so it really has been for me. It's been this really beautiful place that takes different kinds of folks. Now that said, they are. Sp- 
particularly beautiful people who <laughs> then are cool with my having broken up with church. Because that's a different, that's a hard thing for a lot of people in Amarillo. It is. And I appreciate very much an openness and a generosity to be okay with that on my end. And I it, and then that's reciprocal for us. I think for a lot of people, it is a, and at least an opportunity to be suspicious about a person, to think, oh, that that's not like most of the people mm-hmm. I know. And you know, that sort of situation, whether you're not a churchgoer or maybe you vote more progressively or liberal or, you know, whatever is enough of an unlike thing to this community to to cause some division, I think. And I think that there are many friendships that couldn't sustain it. I think so. Um, either that the the passion on one side or the other is so great that the, that you lose some of the bridge. And that's okay. I think that that's okay. But at the same time, I'm really grateful for the relationships that I have developed in Amarillo have been incredibly growing. I feel like I have had an opportunity to speak in to the life and to the perspective of people who, if for nothing else, just a lack of exposure, yeah. maybe never thought about things the way that I do, or the people that I work with in, in, in my work and in my sort of the volunteer life, maybe they haven't encountered those kinds of stories. And so just to have a different perspective brought to them is very illuminating and enlightening and, and, and it allows them to have a little bit more information by which they can then make their own decisions sure. and vice versa. And it's not about this, like, let's all hold hands and be nice. It's not that. It's not about being polite and, you know, trying to make sure that the napkins are straight for the company. It's not that at all. It's this honest living out with a generosity that allows for that coexistence. Okay. Now, before we go any further, I know people are going to want to know what gym you go to where they can make all these great relationships. Oh, I go to the town club. I'm a town club person. I've been at the town club since I came to Amarillo. And so you'll see me every Monday and Wednesday at Cornell. Okay. Sweating like a beast. People will be trying to make friends there now. (laughs) If not with you, then with somebody else in their yoga class. Okay, so... Let's talk about what you do, um, because as as all the different pieces of your resume sort of uh, came together uh, with your work now in, in refugee health, and I do want to hear like what your work is and why it's necessary in this area. So one of the things that we do in our refugee health program is that we provide uh, refugees who've just arrived in the United States a health screening. And that is part of the resettlement package. And we do that. It's a multiplicitous reasoning for that. First of all, if you've lived in a refugee camp, many of them for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. by definition, you have not had great access to health care. Yeah. And so there are very likely some things that have gone untreated or sort of marginally treated that our healthcare system is much more equipped to handle. There's also some infectious disease screening. So we want to make, and just like, you can't have infectious tuberculosis and get on an airplane. That's an excludable condition. You have to stay there, have like incredible documentation of your treatment regimen and completion before they'll let you come over. And there are a handful of those excludable conditions, but like, Instead of talking just like about the nuclear option, there are some other things like intestinal parasites, or we want to make sure that people have vaccines, or if they have um, chronic hepatitis, like all of that stuff matters. Okay. Um, to some, some of it to the health of the public. 
others to the health of the individual. And so we want them to start this. I mean, it's already pretty overwhelming starting over and to be able to do so in like feeling good and in the best, at least physical health possible for a number of reasons. Refugees are expected to be working in 90 days. Mm -hmm. And, um, and consequently those jobs tend to be very physically um, demanding jobs. And so they have to, you know, we need to make sure that their blood pressure is good and, and that kind of stuff so that that, that kind of job is fits their own personal health. Um, so we do a little bit of that, but um, I mean, we give immunizations, we test for a million things, we check their eyes, we um, make sure the kiddos are hitting their developmental milestones. And then, but we're just a screening clinic. So what we do from there is that we refer our patients out to providers in the community. Okay. So we want them to have a medical home. We want them to have a place to go when they have a cough and the bronchitis, a sore throat. Like when you get sick, they need to have their own doctor. Right. We have a doctor just a few hours a week and we don't do primary care. So they need to have a place to go that's theirs. And so that is the purpose of our health screening clinic is to kind of identify some stuff that needs to be taken care of. Some of it we can treat on our end. Others need to, needs to be referred out to a physician who can follow somebody kind of long-term. Is your work primarily administrative or do you have like actual contact with some of the families and the kids who come in? I do to some degree, but primarily my job is as a fireman. I okay. put a lot of fires out and I do that in, um, and then I do a lot of reporting so that we can then take the data that we get and aggregate that with all of the other different health screening programs in the state. So we have an idea of kind of what a snapshot of every settlement in Texas looks okay. like on the health side. Um, I have nurses that work with me that do more of the hands-on work. And so that's why I'm grateful for places um, like Brian Pennington's Refugee Language Project, because it allows me to intersect with refugees in a personal way mm -hmm. that I don't actually really get in my own job. My job is a facilitator. Okay. I do the stuff behind the scenes that allows my nurses to then go out and really do the work. But then you do have a lot of that data Mm -hmm. That indicates, like, what is the scope mm -hmm. of refugee resettlement in, in Amarillo and in Texas? I want to rely on some of your expertise then. And as I've had a lot of guests who talk about, well, you know, I've had some refugee students in the classroom or I've encountered some people, you know, at the store. Like, you actually know who's coming and how many people are coming. Can you give us a snapshot of, like, what the last... 10 or 15 years have, have been like in Amarillo? Sure. Um, the best way that I can describe the re resettlement trend in the last 15 years is if you take a mountaintop and go down to the valley. Um, okay. That's what that looks like now. When I first started in my job 10 years ago, we were resettling nearly 500 individuals a year, and we resettled fewer than 100 last year, Okay, um, which I think really illustrates – that at least in the current political climate, that program has become more politicized than it had in the past. So in in many administrations, that ceiling, which is when the president sets a number and says, you we we can admit up to this number right. of refugees a year, was somewhere in that eighty thousand person range for the entire United States. 
Um, and that number in the, um, in the last four years, that number has decreased significantly so that for fiscal year 2020, the number is 18,000. Okay. Um, and that's then United nationally, States. nationally. And so those numbers and those trends are then again reflected in our resettlement in Amarillo. So we resettled, like I said, fewer than a hundred people last year. I would anticipate that that will continue, uh, into this fiscal year and then, with the presidential election in November, no one knows. Right. What do you think that means in a broader sense for Amarillo? You know, not not with your work or with, you know, anything from like the services provided to refugees, but like for the culture of this community. It's an interesting question because I feel like so few people intersect with our refugee families as it is. They, many of them live in the northeast section of town. There's a pocket sort of near Market Wells Elementary. And so it's really easy if you live and work and go to church and your kids go to school and you go to a grocery store in southwest Amarillo, sort of cerebrally you know that those families are here and that their presence is, exists, mm-hmm. but you don't feel it in your everyday right. life. And so it's... I want to say so deeply that we miss out on culture and stories and contributions, but we're not asking anyway. Right. I don't think we're great stewards of our refugee families. And one of the um, table talks I sat in um, that the Refugee Language Project hosted this year was with a group of African Christians. And simultaneously, they have very little to offer because they're working six days a week at Tyson. Exactly. And there's just nothing left. So you come, you have these families who are these deep connected units whose neighbors are family and that the words for family all kind of muddle together. And we are putting them into backbreaking, exhausting work for eight to 10 hour shifts and and paying them a living wage but then they get trapped because they can't do anything yeah. else for that kind of money and that kind of work is not sustainable for your body and so then these families that have been deeply connected to each other and with to their own children into their extended community now become much more I live it. I go to work. I go home. I live in my house. It's a much more insular unit. Mm-hmm. And and what we heard from those families very deeply is that they feel like they're losing something, particularly with their children, because of the amount of time and the intensity of their work. Hmm. So to so to sort of circuitously answer your question, I don't know because I don't think we're doing a good job of it anyway. Um, but we certainly, with the fewer people that are coming that have the opportunity to share their stories with us, the less we're the less likely it is that we're going to do any good with it. So interesting to think about because we, if if you're not a person who is like we don't want any refugees, and granted there are some people like that, but the other story that we tell about refugees is that this is a great thing. They've come from a war torn area. They've come from persecution. They've arrived in the United States, this land of opportunity. They've got a great job, et cetera. But what I, I hear you say is that often that opportunity has some negative it is byproducts that maybe disrupt the, the family union mm-hmm. or disrupt the joy that they thought they were going to mm-hmm. find because here is all this freedom. 
Uh, but in trying to sustain it, it's it's hard for that family. And fun fact, every refugee that is resettled in the United States has to pay back a portion of their travel loan. Mm. So I think it's $2,500 a person. And some of my Congolese families are quite large. So let's say that, and, and this is not outside of the scope. Um, let's say that it, you have a family of 10. Yeah. The minute that you step foot on American soil, you're $25,000 in debt. How long do they I don't know what the term it? is to pay it off. Um, I wouldn't want to be in $25,000 no. of debt. And you still, like, you don't get a car from it. Yeah. You don't have a down payment on a house. And you're making minimum wage, you're, yeah, most likely. Yeah. Even if you're at um, some of the beef packing plants where they're paying in the a little less than meh, $15, $16, $17 an okay. hour. If you have 10 kids or eight kids... Yeah. It costs a lot of money to live in the United States. You are, there is not that, let's eat that communal table that exists in other places. And so you're responsible for your own heater. You're responsible for your own electricity. You're responsible for your own groceries. You're responsible for your own childcare, which is a huge yeah. cultural difference. Um, and so, yeah, I have had patients in my clinic and they are twitching. They're shaking their hands. They're shaking their legs. They are dying to smoke a cigarette because of their PTSD. Hmm. And we will say, can we refer you to some mental health services? And they say, I'll be okay because I know I'm safe when I sleep. I can go to sleep and know that I'm going to be safe. Okay. So in that regard, yeah, They're it's better. great. Wow. So it's the comparison, right? What is... What is what is the trauma that led you to be a refugee? Nobody wants to be a refugee. Yeah. Everybody wants to live at home. People love their homes. They feel deep connections to their culture and those stories and those places. And that's where they want to be. So it, I feel like in the conversation of immigration, refugees, it gets all muddled up in there. But let me assure you, no refugee I have ever met this is not their first choice right they're grateful for the opportunity and i will t they are resilient and they make the most of it it's not their first choice they want to be at home yeah what do you think would be you know you, you talk about how isolated people can be and never encounter a refugee unless you go to a particular part of town or you're kind of person who wants to eat at unique restaurants or something like that go into the the grocery stores that have products we don't understand mm -hmm. How can someone in that situation force a little bit more interaction with the community of refugees here or help them out um, or be more welcoming to them? So I really do think kind of what you mentioned about going to certain grocery stores, I think that's a great first step. I really do. If you have never been to Trimarket on a Saturday afternoon, oh, you should go. It's so fun. I take people there like people take other people to the Big Texan. Like, let's go, and you can see what Amarillo looks like. Northeast 24th and Northeast Grand. Northeast 24th and Grand. And it's a big grocery store, and that's a pretty diverse community there. So you can buy a Dr. Pepper. Yeah. You can buy some Prego spaghetti sauce, and then you can buy some other stuff, too. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I actually love to shop. If I need bulk mushrooms, like if I'm going to make a soup that has a ton of mushrooms in it, I totally go over there. They're better. They're cheaper. There's tons of them. There's I like to buy my curry paste there. there there's things that that are not like super scary to American cooks. Mm -hmm. um, 
But it's a great way to just to get a better idea. First of all, you find yourself in a part of town maybe that you don't spend much time in. Second of all, it's a great, just in a completely observer role to just to kind of see what people look like and what, look at this, notice their dress and notice their families and notice what they're buying in their carts. And, and I think that those are the little things that are like, you know what? Everybody's kids are rotten in the grocery store. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things that, that help us become other than the, those people. Yeah. So one of the most important things that I sort of feel like I want to accomplish as an advocate for the refugee community and, and, and in my life is to abolish the phrase, those people okay. and whoever, in, whoever it refers to, right? Because that is very much a, that is a pushing away phrase. It's not a gathering phrase. Right. And I want us to be about gathering. And so I think that you can go to the grocery store and wander around and maybe try something new, even if it's just like a fancy mushroom. And then I will tell you that there are many churches in Amarillo who are doing extraordinary work with our refugee families. And look to see if the church that you attend, if you attend church, is doing work there. I think what Ryan's doing at the Refugee Language Project is just stunning because it is um, it is repetitive interaction. So right. it's about relationship, and it is about it, it is it's a two way street. So it's not just like oh look, all the people are coming in to help the refugees. Instead, it's like cultivating friendship, and people find themselves on much more even ground. And so through that, I, I really feel like people flourish. I'm certain that if any volunteer positions are in any of the schools. Our refugee kids really struggle. Yeah. The older they are when they enter the school system, the harder it is for a number of reasons, including standardized testing. It's just not set up for a person who's not been who's in. Who's just learned the language. Who, or is, and who's not been in, um, perhaps not been in brick and mortar schools, yeah, you know, formal yeah. schooling. So the combination of those two things makes school really frustrating and hard. And um, some of the school social workers are just doing extraordinary work with our families in that regard. So I think that with a little creativity and a phone call or two, mm -hmm. you don't have to look very hard to find ways that you can interact in very respectful and equitable ways with okay. our refugee families. All right. So I want to wrap up this section. Um, you, you mentioned... Minnesota nice, and you mentioned the difference in, in how people live in Kansas City uh, versus Amarillo and the Texas Panhandle. Having been here now uh, as an adult and worked with people all over the community, um, including people who are just arriving, what is the personality of Amarillo? What are the people here like? What does a refugee find when they move into this community? Or what did you find when you moved in the, into this community and planted? It was, from speaking on behalf of myself, it was interesting because I was home-ish, Right. Right. And so there are people that I went to high school with that live in Amarillo. I could even at the beginning run into people that I knew at the grocery store okay. at Target. And I really, so I have been, I have a friend who's been in Amarillo about two years. And she and I talk about this a lot because I think it's been interesting. I listen to your show and I, people are all the time talking about how friendly people are. Mm -hmm. And um, 
as an outsider, she did not encounter that. Okay. Um, I have, because it feels, yes. And she is, her region of origin is the upper Midwest. Okay. So she's not a Texan. So for for me, this place was very familiar because it's my native language. It's my, you know, it, it's the place that raised me. And so even though in many ways, maybe I have learned a second language, it's very comfortable. Um, for her, it's been very shocking. Um, I think that the the church culture has been something that's new to her. Mm-hmm. The patterns of communication are just different. I think people people can be they can come off as more aggressive than they actually are. I know that's the case for me. I, I people all over tell me all the time how intimidating I am, and I'm just like I'm actually a really nice person. They're like you're so scary. <laughs> Just your voice is a little bit I just talk loud really is all that it is. Um, that said, like I, I know several years ago I had a surgery and I'm not married. I don't have kids. I live alone. And the people around me took care of me. Hmm. I don't know that that's specific to Amarillo, but I know that in my experience in Amarillo, I have been loved on by people. It's a common story it, in Amarillo. Yes, it is. Else. Absolutely. Um, recently, and sort of to say... The panhandle by proxy, I guess last week, the armory in Shamrock caught fire in the night and basically burned to the ground. And to see the outpouring of generosity for their Meals on Wheels program and all of that coming in from all over because of people who have connections to the city or who've gone to the... St. Patrick's so celebration. St. Patrick's yeah. celebration. And they proceeded through as a contestant in the Miss Irish Rose or the Beard Contest or whatever it is. Um, I, I really do love that. I even love, like, so several years ago, Wellington went to the state football championship. Mm-hmm. And it was the f- so fun. Everybody was so encouraging. It, re- it I mean, people along the road were like, their schools let out to cheer us on as they drove to Dallas. I, I love that. So there's some of that shared, in, particularly in the small towns, there's that shared sort of um, hub of your school. Mm-hmm. And so that hub transfers. Like, we want to support this school when they're going and doing well and, and, you know, and we would hope that they would do that for us. I I do really love that. At the end of the day, certainly culturally patterns of communication are different, you know, but Kansas city, Missouri did not, didn't plow the streets when it snowed just like Amarillo. So, so I think that you find a lot, I mean, we really are more similar than we're different. And, and I, and I think that that has been, as sort of a, a thread of my life that I really appreciate and 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 want, like I said, I want to live in this gathering sort of posture that we really are more alike than we are different. And so my political beliefs may be different than your political beliefs, but if you have a kid in the hospital, I'm there for you. Right. Your you know relationship to your church may take up a different space and time than mine does, but one, we're still going to find a time to meet for coffee. And we're going to talk about real stuff. Okay. We're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about the world. We're going to talk about all of that. And and I don't want to be Pollyanna about it either, because I know that there are people that don't want to have that conversation right. with me. And that's okay. But I have managed to find in Amarillo those people who do, and it's been great. If you're a regular listener to this show, you've heard in past episodes from some amazing female entrepreneurs like Nicole Fleetwood earlier this month. Phyllis Nickham back in December, or Dejanae Johnson in November, Amarillo has a huge number of women in business. 
And on March 8th, International Women's Day, the Amarillo Women's Collaborative will celebrate this community. This one-day event brings together local woman-owned businesses, female entrepreneurs, and area organizations that provide services to the women in our area. It's from 1 to 7 p.m. on that Sunday, March 8th, in the Big Gray Warehouse at 509 South Grant. And the event is absolutely free. It's going to feature local vendors, educational services, live music, and workshops that focus on sustainable living. The goal of the event's organizers is to create a platform for the women-owned businesses that are so vital to our economy's success. Encouraging and helping these businesses grow is critical to strengthening the Amarillo workforce. To learn more, look up Amarillo Women's Collaborative on Facebook. I'm excited about this event on March 8th, and I hope you'll put it on your calendar. And one last thing, I'm starting a weekly Hey Amarillo email newsletter. It'll have a little bit of background about each episode on it. It'll talk about the guests. It'll have some stuff about Amarillo and maybe even a couple of opinions from me. If that sounds interesting to you, you can subscribe at heyamarillo.com or through the podcast's Facebook page. If you don't want another thing in your inbox, I totally understand. I don't want another thing either, but I do think I can provide something uh, of value to, to kind of go along with the podcast. So if you're interested, hit up heyamarillo.com. Okay, I'm back with Lacey Scott. Lacey, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight, as you know. Um, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you get to answer those questions. A lot of them are questions that other guests have been asked and addressed, so I'm eager to hear what your answers are going to be. The first one is a very standard one. What's your favorite local coffee shop? So actually, some friends of mine have just opened a new coffee shop, so I'm so glad you asked. So really? it gives me an opportunity to plug them a little bit. It's called Strata Coffee, and okay. it is right across the street from Northwest um, on Coulter, Northwest Texas Hospital. Okay. So you know where that giant toot and totem is? Yes. Just around the corner. And so they, um, I am an ardent devoted at home coffee drinker. Like I set the pot before I go to bed so that when I get up, it's ready to pour. So I am not a person that goes to a coffee shop okay. every day, but I do get my beans there. And if I'm going to go uh, to a coffee shop at the Strata's my place right now, okay. and because it's kind of new we'll and that. it's not super busy in there right now, um, it's a great place to have a meeting. So because you can, it's not loud, you can talk. The atmosphere is fantastic. So I would highly recommend that if you're on that side of town or just looking for something new, you make your way over. Or you've just taken food to somebody in the hospital. That's right. Or I remember my dad had a big surgery about a year and a half ago, and I was desperate for a good coffee shop by the hospital. So um, I knew about this, that this was down the road, and I was very sad that I was delayed. Okay. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? So I, it's been maybe a couple of years. My friends' kids love to go see Big Tex, and so we okay. would go. But the better story is when I was in high school, my after playoff football games or if we played in Panhandle or in Highland Park, our coaches and principals and all knew that the Big Texan could crank out some chicken fries. Yep. And so we would pull up in our buses after a football game, and they would just basically feed the entirety of Wellington High School. And I did that – I could, it was, I would count on two hands the number of times that I ate right. a chicken fry at the that's Big a good, So if, if any Amarillo restaurant is capable of handling <laughs> a busload of people, that's the one. Yes, you know? absolutely. Okay. In and out, and all the coaches loved it because who doesn't love a chicken fry? What does this area have too much of? So I thought a lot about this one. I'm going to get on a soapbox for just a okay. second. Climb on up. Because I really, 
people are naysayers around here. I I think, and it's really interesting because I listen to this podcast and I hear people talk about the entrepreneurial spirit of West Texas and how everybody's so creative and has such great ideas. And it feels like every one of them were met with, are met with, mm, I don't know about that. Hmm. Not for me. No, of course not. Let's be clear. But from the community when yes, they share like their dreams. Peop- I feel I would like one time to hear sort of in the court of public opinion, when someone comes to, to out in the world with an idea that someone goes, that's genius. Hmm. I think that is a fantastic idea. And I want to help you figure out how to make that work rather than the shaking their heads and go, hmm, this is terrible. And here are all the reasons that we'll never be able to make it happen. Do you have any theories why that is? I don't know. I I have an Eeyore in my life. And so I kind of get that that reality piece, but I don't know. And I and and what it makes me want to do is turn into Julia Sugarbaker with my giant car and start running people yeah. over. It's just like, come on, y'all. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Single men in their forties. <laughs> okay. That's all. Well, I can't help you with that. Uh, well, you know, one must it one must speak the truth. I, I imagine that's pretty accurate. That uh, that's a demographic that's hard it's to locate. It's quite slim around even here. at the gym. Uh, uh, even at the oh, <laughs> well, at least it's amusing in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why they're at the gym <laughs> if they are. Okay, I won't dig uh, much further into that. <laughs> What's the most underrated aspect of living in Amarillo? I can sit on my back porch and see the stars. Wow, okay. So I remember, speaking of living in, in large cities, when I, I remember very vividly one night I was driving home from Kansas City and I had left after work. And I was between Oklahoma City and the Texas state line. So it was mm-hmm. late. Yeah. And I just nearly had to pull over. The stars were so bright and so vivid and so beautiful. And it was just completely breathtaking. And I thought, if I don't pull over, I'm going to wreck because I can't yeah. stop. And while, yeah, I mean, it's not that bright in the middle of town, I can sit on my back porch and see the stars. Yeah. And it's fantastic. So where I live is right in the middle of town. And we've gone out to our hot tub and sit out there yes. and point out specific constellations and see it the way the Greeks intended. You, know, you can see all the stars that, that form the different pieces. Um, so that is absolutely true and is not something that gets talked about quite mm-hmm. often enough. We talk about sunsets and sunrises and all that stuff, but stars, that's a good one. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? This feels a little bit about like a backhanded compliment, but I genuinely mean it. It is surprisingly interesting. Okay. Um, once again, I think that Amarillo sort of perpetuates its reputation as a cow town and as, you know, um, this whatever. And it is that, Mm -hmm. but it's also filled with really cool people and, um, and, and that are very different from one another. I feel like a lot of, you know, you can do a lot of different activities that, that are interesting to a wide variety of people. Mm -hmm. I just think that, that if you allow Amarillo to operate in its stereotypes, it'll work. But you're really missing out. Like, okay. It's surprisingly interesting. I'd like to see that on a billboard or something. <laughs> Come to Amarillo. It's surprisingly interesting. <laughs> Not as interesting. bad as you thought. <laughs> What's your favorite Amarillo neighborhood? So I live in Bivens, and I walk my dogs up. Um, we just make laps on Julian. Mm-hmm. 
And I recently found out that Julian was the first airstrip in Amarillo, Mm -hmm. which I just thought was the coolest thing ever. And it made me love Julian more, and it made me love living in Bivens even more. That's one reason that street is so wide. (laughs) In Kansas City, they have tons of parkways Mm -hmm. um, throughout the city. It reminds me very much of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? So I love Ichiban, but it is a difficult uh, task to get a table at Ichiban. That said, there is very few, like there's very little that makes me happier than a notice of a meatloaf Thursday at Panhandlers. Really? I love Panhandlers. It's kind of like my own cheers. Like I walk in and Crystal sees me come in and she puts a pitcher of tea on my table and lets me know when they have chocolate chip cookies that day because they are super fantastic. And I would challenge anybody to a fight. They have the best French fries in Amarillo. Okay. And we should probably say... Panhandlers is not a restaurant that people are just going to drive by and see. Mm-hmm. It's in the basement of Amarillo National Bank. On and Taylor. only open for lunch. Only open for lunch, but a very, very delicious lunch there. Salad bar, all that stuff. Okay, that concludes the eight straight questions. Lacey, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what is one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? So Super Tuesday is coming up. Yes. It's March 3rd. Um, I personally am going to be in Houston that day for a work trip. So I was really glad I realized that so that I can early vote. Yes. Regardless of what your political persuasions are, regardless of where you sort of land on the political spectrum, it's a Tuesday is a super important day. We're choosing all of the candidates that are going to be finalists on the ballot in November. And if you want to have a say in who those people are, and I very much do want to have a say in who those people are, and I want you to want to have a say in who those people are, go, the library has voters guides from the League of Women Voters. Those publications are very um, nonpartisan. So you're not going to get, it's not like a political TV ad that are in those that are going to give you, they're going to, um, the positions of the candidate. It's very, um, it's kind of boring actually, but it's exactly what you want. It's based on policy. It's, yeah, it's based on policy. Of, yes. Yeah. Innuendo or uh-huh, something like or, that. Or um, sensationalism or mm-hmm. anything that's going to sell a TV ad. That's not what this is, but it is an incredibly useful resource, particularly when you start getting into things like the Supreme Court of Texas. I don't know anything about any of that stuff, but I mean, they make important decisions that I want to have a say in who those people are Mm -hmm. that are making those decisions. So those voter guides can be very helpful in kind of helping guide your process. And you can take those in with you to the voting booth um, so that you don't have to remember all of the people that you want um, to go ahead and circle their name. The the ballot this time is pretty robust. And so you probably want a little bit of help okay. remembering. So go to the library, pick up a voter's guide, find out where your voting locations are in Potter or Randall County and go. Also, if the lines are long, don't be deterred. All right. And this is a really unique time because it's rare that Amarillo is voting for a new congressional representative. Mm-hmm. Um it's happening this year, and we live in such a big district that there are people running who live in Amarillo, people running who live hundreds of miles away from Amarillo, people running who did not even live in the district last year, but now they do. And so this is an opportunity to vote for a representative who actually will represent – lost my train of thought interests. The lives and the interests of this area. So, yeah, definitely vote. I can co-sign with that. Lacey Scott, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me talk for an hour. <laughs> oh, of course. You did did some good talking. 
And that concludes the show. First, thanks to Lacey for the interview. Thanks to the Manny Camper and SKP Creative for sponsoring the show. If you haven't put the Amarillo Women's Collaborative on your calendar for March 8th, do that now. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show every week. Hey Amarillo is made possible thanks to the financial support of my executive producers, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Jennifer Callahan, Chris Selda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, and Jason Burr. They support the show through patreon.com slash heyamarillo, and you can do it too. This has been episode 126. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.